what's interesting is a lot of people in this field, they go into it, as I mentioned at the beginning, because they don't want to go into business. They don't want to go into that part of the world. They like this stuff, you know, or they're painfully shy. <laughs> they want to go to a place where they can sort of do their gig, you know, write their papers and, and deal with their stuff. But in the end, you're like every job, the key thing to do is to, to manage people or deal with people on a daily basis. And so for me, giving any advice that if you do want to have a, a, a leadership position, you just know that you're not going to be able to play with the with the objects and the toys in the museum a lot. <laughs> you're going to be dealing with this other stuff. Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry. I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions make that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for the Attraction Pros Podcast. This episode of the podcast is kindly sponsored by Attractions IO, the guest experience platform behind Merlin Entertainment's San Diego Zoos and the Kennedy Space Center's branded mobile apps. And like us, the folks at Attractions IO are on a mission to elevate our experiences. Their latest launch adds in-app photos to the Attractions IO mobile app, giving guests more time to view, purchase, and share their media with loved ones. Impressively, 88% of consumers say that they trust content and recommendations from their friends and family over any other form of marketing, making user-generated content like photo sharing an essential strategy for your marketing team this season. To learn more about Attractions.io and the new in-app photo feature, visit attractions.io slash photos. Hey, Josh, how are you? Hey, Matt, I'm doing really well. How are you? I am fantastic. <laughs> nice job on the hey. I had to stretch it out for you. <laughs> I appreciate that. appreciate that. I got a question. All right. When you were in school, did you like history class? Depends on what grade, what teacher, and what part of history. So the history of roller coasters. Best class ever. <laughs> <laughs> So were there, you said that it depends. So were there particular parts of history or, or time periods that you kind of gravitated to or were more interested in? I don't know if there were any any particular time periods, but I, I know that there were definitely some that were more fascinating than others. And part of that probably had to do with the teacher, the educator. Mm -hmm. I think that there were there were some that probably just used a lot of terminology like textile exports and like <laughs> things like that. And it's like, okay, that's how I'm learning social studies and like the history of different geographies and cultures and things like that. But uh, uh, I, I would say as a, as a net overarching, yes, I enjoyed learning history really of, of any particular time period at, as a whole, but there were some that delivered it better than others. What about you? Um, well, I would definitely say that there were some that delivered it better than others on all subjects, but I was not really much into history uh, mm -hmm. when I was growing up. And, you know, our family vacations, a lot of times were 
two historical places. And I think my parents were trying to get me more and more um, educated about history, but I didn't really kind of get the history bug until much, much later in life, probably 10 years ago or so when I started traveling a little bit more for work and there would be all these different tours you could take. And I really found it fascinating to take a tour, to learn a couple of nuggets of history. And for whatever reason, that became really satisfying for me to hear this stuff, right? And maybe I just wasn't interested when I was younger. Maybe I had the perspective of age, but now that I am older, I'm much more uh, into trying to learn about it, which led me to the National Civil War Museum in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, because I had some extra time to to spend when I was going to Pennsylvania a number of weeks ago. And I just kind of Googled stuff to do in the surrounding area. And the National Civil War Museum popped up. So I went up there, had a great experience. Happened to ask one of the uh, one of the employees if their CEO or executive director might be around because I thought this would be a great experience to talk about on the Attraction Pros podcast. And lucky for us, Jeff Nichols was there. We exchanged business cards, and that is our guest today. That is probably the best way to source podcast guests. <laughs> Show up, say, "Let me talk to the boss." That's right. On the podcast. Yeah, it worked. It worked. It worked. Uh, We've got an amazing interview with Jeff Nichols coming up, uh, talking about all things related to the National Civil War Museum. And I would say to to broaden out history museums in general, museums in general, nonprofits in general, uh, Jeff, give this a a deep dive on what it's like being an executive leader in that space. Uh, He was passionate about history uh, very early on, and, and that included uh, or that led to a lot of his, his educational background, which was in American history. It was in education. It was in business. And now he's running a business that delivers education about American history. So <laughs> I, kind of a, a perfect culmination of, of all of those. Uh, you know, he talks about the role of history museums in, in today's age. And he said the museums are more critical than they've ever been. And I think it, it kind of ties nicely to what we were just talking about as far as, you know, he said in school, you weren't all too crazy about history. And we agree that there are some teachers who delivered it better than others. And, you know, of course, the ones who who deliver it well are very passionate about the subject and it really resonates with their students. But uh, the museum has the opportunity to really bring people into the story and deliver it in a way that can't necessarily be done in a traditional classroom or a textbook. Well, in speaking about being passionate about a subject, there are definitely people who are passionate about the Civil War. And uh, Jeff really talks about how they really try to balance both sides of the of the story. And I noticed that when I went through the exhibit that there were, um, you know, stories being told on both sides of the of the aisle, if you will. Right. And I thought that was really well executed throughout the the museum. And it's really interesting to hear Jeff talk about how that has, you know, not just been something that's been a a focus of the exhibits within the museum, but also in the community, right? And and focusing on how they've not shied away from what can be a very polarizing topic. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, he also talks about really connecting history to today and that the, you know, it's, it's so important that we study history because it can help to, to broaden our perspective of everything that we're seeing in the present and that it can, you know, influence the way that, uh, that, that we see everything that's happening around us. So I I think that's a, you know, it's, it was a really important conversation, uh, you know, for us to have and to do this interview. 
Well, should we stop talking and hear the important interview? Let's do it. Hey, Jeff, welcome to the Attraction Pros podcast. We're really excited for our interview today. How are you? I'm, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me, Josh. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Uh, so to get this kicked off, can you tell us a little bit about your background and about your career? Sure. Um, I, I have been working in the museum field for the better part of 25 years or so. Um, it all started back in Connecticut, where I was born and raised. Uh, I went to school at a state school called Southern Connecticut State University. Uh, I was the first person in my family, actually, to go to a four-year college. Uh, and um, I was there studying uh, history um, and not quite sure what I was going to do with my life, to be honest with you, uh, at 18 or 19. And then uh, I uh, began to student teach and, and did that for a little while, finished that and realized it wasn't for me. I didn't want to be in the classroom. So I volunteered at a local museum called, at the time, the New Haven Colony Historical Society. It's called the New Haven Museum now. And I started working in the curatorial department, um, just uh, working with uh, different objects they had in their collection. Uh, and I sort of fell in love with museum work um, and quickly realized that was the career I wanted to have. Uh, even then, though, not knowing exactly how that may play out, I was eventually became a volunteer for a while. And then I was a, a weekend guide at a historic house in New Haven, Connecticut, and eventually got a full time job at the New Haven Museum in the education department. So I led tours of the museum and with school groups and eventually walking tours around the community. Uh, and was at that museum for a couple of years. And then I went to uh, another Connecticut attraction in Bridgeport, Connecticut, called the Barnum Museum. P.T. Barnum, the great impresario, who kind of fitting for this podcast, actually, I think, um, was born and raised, uh, actually lived in Bridgeport. Um, and his last gift to the city was a museum, which is still there today. And so I was able to work there. And I was a lot of fun doing all these kind of wacky, crazy circus related things, um, fire eaters and sword swallowers, all this fun stuff. Uh, and then I spent a um, few years there. And then in 2001, I went to the Mark Twain House and Museum in Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, Mark Twain, the great American author, of course, of Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, um, although not from Connecticut, lived there for 20 years. And it is where he wrote his, his, his great works, including Tom and Huck, as well as Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. It's a really fantastic historic house museum with lots of interesting guests. We had... Um, all kinds of people that would come and experience it. Bruce Springsteen came by once for a tour, played Rosalita on Mark Twain's piano. Really cool. Um, so we had, yeah, some really cool things. And and then uh, about 2012, I moved to um, uh, Virginia uh, and I went to work uh, outside of Lynchburg, Virginia, which is sort of South Central Virginia, at a place called Poplar Forest, Poplar like a poplar tree. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, you've all heard of, I'm sure, third president amongst other things. He uh, had a house in Charlottesville called Monticello, back of the pen, uh, back of the nickel, of course. Um, but he also built a retreat out in Central Virginia, and I was the CEO there, uh, excuse me, executive director there uh, for about seven years. And I've been here at this museum, the National Civil War Museum, for about eighteen months now as the as the CEO. So, kind of bounced around a few states, but all within the same framework of either historic house or or a museum setting. So Jeff, I just got to ask, were you doing the one, were you the one doing the fire eating and the sword swallowing? Um, I wish. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, what was his name? I think his name was Johnny Mia, the czar of bizarre. And he did things like that. <laughs> so okay. we had all these really interesting things. You know, P.T. Barnum was one of those interesting guys um, who everyone thinks of, you know, as the great circus empresario, but he didn't do that until really what most of us would consider retirement. I think it was late 60s or early 70s. 
he owned a museum in New York and he he toured acts around the country, did all kinds of interesting things. And he was an abolitionist before the Civil War, um, a teetotaler his whole life. Really interesting character, um, this hybrid of things you didn't expect. But no, I wasn't a sword swallower, thank goodness. <laughs> Seen a few, though. <laughs> So I'd love to go back because you mentioned, uh, you know, 18, 19 year old uh, years old, fascinated with history. Um, that's not something that bloomed in me until much later in my life. Like at, back in that time, I it wasn't wasn't something that interest me, interested me. But what was it about history that got you so excited about it that you wanted to major in it in college? Well, you know, I think it was one of the few uh, subjects in even in high school that really intrigued me. Um yeah, uh, you know, I, I did okay in school. I wasn't a great scholar by any stretch, but the history courses were always the thing that kind of attracted my attention. Um, and obviously, the uh, like a lot of people around my age, um, I graduated college, uh, high school in 80, 1989. The next year, the Ken Burns documentary came out on the Civil War, which is that epic um, uh, history of the war and kind of set that stage. And that kind of drew me in. I often think of that that the Civil War story as the, as the that initial kind of grab that people, maybe guys like me, have into history. Um, so for me, it was just seeing stories like that, reading um, a, a lot of books when I was a kid on, on various topics of history, and, and just sort of falling into it. Uh, my grandfather, who I unfortunately never met, he passed before I did. He was a top turret gunner to B-17 over Germany in World War II, and that always fascinated me, trying to find out more about him. So I think it was this combination of things. Um, uh, that led me to that. Um, and obviously being, you know, being trained to be a classroom teacher was part of that too, but, um, ending up in a museum was just a, a bit of a, a curveball. It's not a traditional way of earning a living, that's for sure. But, uh, it's, uh, it's been interesting and fun. Yeah. It, but looking at your educational background, it includes degrees in American history, education, and business. And would you say that what you do now is really kind of a, a culmination of all three of those? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. So I think one of the, the big misconceptions that people like me have going into the nonprofit sector, especially into museums and cultural sites, is that you don't have to worry about money. You know, we're not driven by it. Um, it's not something you want to deal with in the business world. We just don't have that kind of mindset. But then you quickly realize, especially as you move up the leadership chain, it's always about money. <laughs> so one of my favorite quotes uh, is from Mark Twain, and it's the lack of money is the root of all evil. So he has all these wonderful sayings, and that's one of them. And you're absolutely right, Josh. When I was, you know, going through those different positions, starting in the education side of things, towards and various things, and then you get into programs, and you're bringing in people. Um, you know, the budgets get larger, you're dealing with more money. Quickly realized that having some business sense was important. And when I became, I think I was uh, either director of education or like vice president of something at the national at the uh, Mark Twain House is when I went to school um, for my for an MBA, um, realizing that money was and the management of it and how to run a business and how to think strategically was going to be very critical for the, the job that I had. And that has been uh, really a, a godsend for me. Uh, it really helps you think in a different direction. Um, I certainly was the only person in the, in the cohort um, that was uh, in the nonprofit field. But, you know, you learn a lot from everybody that's in that room. So for me, the MBA has been uh, very helpful over the last, what, no, 13, 14 years, um, if nothing else, and for the helping with strategic thinking. 
And with working in a, a nonprofit, especially a history site, um, you know, critical thinking skills are, are are developed too as you're trying to analyze history and make relations between the past and today, which is really the benefit of history. So uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think part of it was my my first degree was from uh, Bank Street College of Education, my master's degree. Um, and I did that to advance myself in this field. Uh, quite often in the nonprofit sector, especially museums, if you do not have a master's degree in your subject area, whether you're a curator or an educator or some other aspect, it's hard to move up. And so that was one reason I did it too. Um, but the MBA really was one of those things that just um, came along at the right time. We were there during the, I was taking courses during the the financial crisis of 2008, which was a hoot, <laughs> trying to figure out what was going on. And and I'll never forget my professor when in the, in the middle of it, we were asking him, what's going on? What do you think it is? And he turned around to the blackboard and he wrote greed. And uh, that kind of sums it up nicely. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's those things that that stick with you. And so for me, it's all been a, a great experience and all beneficial. So, Jeff, you said you've been at the uh, National Civil War Museum now for about 18 months. Um, so, yep. yep. So tell us tell us a little bit about how that transition has been coming to the museum. And also, um, I got to visit the museum a number of weeks ago and found it fascinating. So I would also love to hear kind of your take on the experience there. Sure, sure. So this is uh, my third position as in leadership. Um, um from uh, obviously work in a museum, working at the uh, Mark Twain House, where I started off as school program coordinator, ended up as executive director after 11 years. And then uh, the national, excuse me, um, Papa Force for about seven and here for about 18 months. Um, you know, everyone has its similarities and differences. You know, the old grass is always greener on the other side uh, approach to life. But, you know, this museum is very interesting. Um, the history of it is, is sort of unique as well. Uh, it was founded in the early 2000s, um, really by the, the former mayor, Stephen Reed, who uh, had been mayor for when he was finished for about 30 years. And he really did everything he could to try to advance um, and uh, improve uh, the life of folks in the in the community. One thing he wanted to do was a series of museums. He wanted one on Wild West. He wanted one on African-American history and the Civil War. And he really got sort of two of them going, one on, on uh, uh, firefighting, a smaller one in town and the Civil War Museum. So it's been here since 2001. Um, and uh, last year we welcomed our millionth visitor to the organization. Um, and it's, uh, as you saw when you were here, Matt, it, it has a, a really great collection. The mayor collected a lot of this um, uh, for the city on behalf of the city uh, and put together 25,000 objects, both uh, um, uh, 3D objects, everything from clothing to cannon to, to uh, different armaments, as well as uh, paper, a really comprehensive view of the war. And one goal of the museum was always to tell, try to tell the full scale of the war um, from the causes of it through reconstruction, that period at the end of the war uh, where the country was brought back together and, and, and lots of things happened. But um, the museum itself, I think, does a great job of telling the story there. Our curator from time to time has mentioned that it's sort of a Civil War 101 course, where you walk through and you really get it. If you didn't know much about the war, you were left with a better feeling for it. Um, so transitioning here, you know, there's a lot of things that rhyme. Uh, um, as another quote that's attributed to Mark Twain, which unfortunately hasn't been nailed down to him yet. I don't think it will be, but that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. 
Uh, and so museum work is the same way. All these museums sort of rhyme. We all have the same issues. Big secret, there's never enough money um, and uh, or staff. Um, but, you know, it's always telling these amazing stories um, and with wonderful artifacts. And you get to meet really, really neat people. Would love to dive into the question somewhat. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> Yeah, I'd love to dive even even further in that and talking about the experience and delivering the educational content, but in ways that are engaging and entertaining and knowing that the, the subject matter is, you know, is very somber and it's very serious. And, but being able to to ensure that people are coming and they, they walk away saying, I learned something while at the same time saying I, I, ha I had a good time. I had a, a you know, a, a good experience going there. Sure, that's always the 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 which the challenge, right? And for any business, but for a place like this in particular, and it is sometimes hard to get. What what you can't become is just. You um, think of the worst history course you had back in in college or high school, where just a recitation of facts. You can't. That's not the true story. It's making those connections and links to the past that are reminiscent of things you're going through today. So those connections for me. Uh, and so when people come on a normal tour, uh, meaning a, a walk-in tour, they'll plunk down their $15 and walk through the exhibit like you did, Matt. And it's a nice mixture of text panel, so basic information on the war, lots of imaging, and also audio-video components um, that were put together. And frankly, for exhibits that were put together when the museum opened, so over 20 years ago, they've held up extremely well, uh, not just from the way they look, but the content uh, as well. Um, and so for, so in this case, the videos, you get introduced to several fictional people, but based on actual letters and diaries of real people, but more composites. And so you get a good sense of what a Southerner was thinking about, what a Northerner was thinking about, what an African-American was thinking about, what a woman was thinking about during the course of the war. And you can follow that person through the entire exhibit, 25,000 square feet of exhibit space um, in the museum, so fairly large. And in between, we have uh, again, uh, we have dioramas that were put up, um, uh, uh, really lifelike looking um, uh, figures of different stories, um, including a slave market that uh, actually existed in Washington, D.C., within yards of the White House uh, in the 1850s, where you see a, a group of five African-Americans, including a mother and a young child, being sold, being sold at auction. And so it doesn't shy away from those uh, Josh, you were kind of hinting at some of those challenging stories. And you are talking about a war after a war, after all that killed. Now it's estimated somewhere over 700,000 people died, uh, it, it, which would be 10, 12 million today if, if we had a war like that again. So a massive blow. Uh, and so being able to have these different ways of sharing that story are important. We also do special events and programs through the course of the year. We'll offer free days. So families can come, especially those who may be a disadvantaged. And at those, we'll have um, reenactors here, people who are dressed up in various um, uh, soldiers from the Civil War uh, that bring a, another layer of reality to it. Uh, we do a program called Civil War Saturdays in September. We started it last year. We'll be doing it again this year. Uh, one of our board members also happens to own his own cannon. Um, so he brings a Civil War era cannon and his unit come. And they do live firing demonstrations, firing blanks, of course, um, but they fire off the cannon. Uh, and again, you know, that sense of reality that comes with that kind of experience. And and we also don't shy away from challenging topics. And just last week, we did a, a, um, a program uh, with a professor called uh, named Peniel Joseph from University of Texas. 
who has a book called The Third Reconstruction. He's saying that right now we're living through another reconstruction, essentially since the election of Barack Obama through today. Everything we've been through, which has been quite a lot over the last decade or so in particular, um, he kind of puts that in a frame uh, frame uh, around the, the the first reconstruction at the end of the Civil War. So I think we try to do a, a nice mixture of hands-on activities for families uh, so that kids can get engaged and learn something while they're here. If you're an adult who um, you come in and all you care about are the battles, there's plenty here for that too. And we get people like that. There's still a lot of Civil War uh, aficionados who want to who know the the, the very min detailed minutiae of what happened at a particular battle. They can learn about that here. And then we can also do public programs, uh, both in-house and online uh, via Zoom, like we're doing today, that again, engage audience, different audiences that may not be able to come to the museum, but we can share the story of the Civil War and its legacy. So thank you, first of all, for sharing your um, view and sort of a, a lot of the things that the museum encompasses. Um, I'd love to share just a little bit about my experience and get sure. your reaction to I'd that. Love to hear that. Yeah. Um, because you hit on a couple of things that I found to be uh, particularly moving uh, when I went through the experience. First of all, those those video um, segments, I didn't realize until probably I got to the third one that it was the same people. Right. And, you know, and, and you follow their story throughout. And I thought that was an incredibly effective storytelling technique. Um, and, and I just found that 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 fascinating. But you also talked about the dioramas um, and the slave trade um, scene. And I don't know who made those those figures, those human figures, but they were so lifelike. And obviously there's there's a there's a there's an emotion that you feel when you see something like that happening. But right. you could also I, I don't know that I've ever seen more more emotion on a inanimate object, if that makes sense. You know, yeah, so, no, I, yeah. so there's there's some incredible emotion there. And especially the the gentleman that's right inside the the jail cage. Mm -hmm. He's kind of he's got his back turned, but he's his face yep. like scary lifelike but again you could see the pain you could feel the pain and one of the things i'm curious about is like when people go through that experience are they like a lot of times we talk about emotional connection right in any kind of attraction so are they getting that emotional connection like i did like is that kind of a typical experience whether it's at those uh parts of the the uh, museum or or even other other exhibits Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think they, they do. Uh, and we, we know that through the reviews we get through TripAdvisor and Google and other, they talk about the, the powerful nature of certain things as you did. And the company that made those is called Taylor Studios. And, and they do this type of work all across the, they do work all across the country. Um, this is one of their first project or early project, I guess, in the, their career. Okay. And the one reason they're so lifelike is they base the, the faces off of staff they have or other people they know so you're actually looking at a real person's face obviously not a 19th century person but a early 21st century person but i agree it's very powerful and those are the things that really have held up the best in some ways because of that that ability to kind of share that story through that visual medium it just adds another layer and i think kids find it fascinating in particular too it's one of those things that I, one thing I remember when I was a kid, my parents brought me to Gettysburg, which is about 40 minutes from here. Um, and I remember just being at a restaurant and a Civil War reenactor kind of guy standing over me. And I still remember that moment, you know, and 
and thinking, am I looking at a real person or is it a ghost or whatever? Well, I was five or six, whatever. And so, you know, those are the kind of things that stick in your head. Um, and so I think a lot of people do have that experience. As an older person, you can relate to the feelings of the individual. And to a younger person, you're kind of looking back in history and you're wondering what's going on here. So, no, you're not alone, Matt. There's definitely people who have had that type of experience here. Um, and and part of it is the team that that designed this back in 2001 was a very uh, capable group of, of people. And one of the lead designers of the of the entire experience, especially the narrative of it, the flow of the exhibit itself, also worked on the Holocaust Museum in Washington. If you've been there and how powerful that is. So you get a sense of, of the level they had. And that's really, um, I think, that one of the great legacies that the mayor and his team left uh, this museum was that that storytelling ability. So I'm glad you had that experience. Um, and yeah, it, it does. And we also hear a lot from about the, uh, we also have a uh, an ambulance downstairs and also a tent where a gentleman's getting his leg amputated. We get a lot on that too, that, um, yes. but you get a sense. Um, and actually that's one of the few areas uh, that if we had to do it over, we would change a slight interpretation. The gentleman getting his his leg cut off, a Union soldier being having his leg appetite of being shot, the the type of weaponry that was used, the, the musket ball that came out was a mini ball. It was rifled, so it would spin, and it really just shatter limbs, and they had no ability to repair them. So that's why there were so many amputations. But they in there they have him biting down on a rope uh, as he's having his leg cut off, which honestly did not happen that much. They actually did have ether. And it was very commonplace and used quite a bit. So the rope in the mouth, the Civil War surgery perspective, that's the only place thing we may change within it. And that's not bad for an exhibit of you know, 25,000 square feet. Yeah. One of the things that I'm curious about, too, is there are a lot of people who are very passionate about their position on the Civil War and curious as far as uh, the way that you're able to tell the whole story but without alienating or or, or upsetting any uh, subset of your guest demographics? Sure. I, I, that's a good question. And, and working at all the places I've worked at, most of them at least, there have been these stories that have been challenging. Um, uh, Mark Twain House, for example, uh, of course, in Huckleberry Finn, he uses the N-word over 200 times. Mm. Um, so, you know, discussing that and sharing that and what he was trying to get across uh, in that story, amongst other things, was a challenge. Um, working in uh, in Lynchburg uh, at the Thomas Jefferson site, obviously he wrote the Declaration of Independence and did all those wonderful things, which we still live with in that legacy. But he also owned 607 people in his lifetime, as well as fathering children. So you have that controversy to to talk about. And then here, obviously, it was a controversy. The whole war, um, uh, half the country seceding from the other half um, over. Over what? Over slavery. Uh, and one thing I, I was very happy about when I came here on my tour, I walked in for the first time, too, when I came for my first interview. I hadn't been here before. But the fact that this museum never shied away from the fact that the root cause of the war was slavery. People say states' rights, but what was that state right? The right to own property. And what was that property? Unfortunately, other human beings, African-Americans. Uh, and it never shies away from that. And you've, I'm sure you've heard of the 1619 Project and those types of things that have been out there. It was in the New York Times and has caused a lot of controversy over time. This museum mentioned 
that year, 1619, as the first time Africans were brought to the United, what became the United States and were enslaved. So we've been talking about that for 20 years. So that aspect is great because it just lays it out as well as other uh, information that backs it up. But at the same time, you can have that being the facts of life, that this war was about slavery, uh, that the Confederacy was the first and only, uh, which is good, um, republic that was set up based on race, um, that you know it was a white man's republic, essentially. And you know there are people who are have that perspective that you know the, the, they come from the South and they have that Southern perspective. But I think if they go through, they get a good sense that they're, you know, the true causes of the war go through the battles of the war, and that is really told in a, in a factual way as well. Um, and so you see the strengths and weaknesses of everybody. We talk about Robert E. Lee and, um, and as well as Ulysses S. Grant and everybody else in between. Uh, and then when you finish up the gallery, uh, the exhibit, we talk about Reconstruction a bit. We actually want to enhance that. It's one of the projects we want to work on going forward. Uh, but you also read about the country coming back together. Um, over the course of 20 or 30 years after the war. And so uh, uh, I think we try to tell as complete a story as we can in, in the best way we can. And one strength that all museums have, and this has remained the case for as long as I've been in this field, is that people think we're uh, museums are trustworthy. They believe we are, and I think we are, um, that we are sharing facts, um, that we don't have some particular agenda necessarily. Um, there are always agendas. You're, it's the, the way of life. But um, so when people come to a place like this, I think they understand they're getting facts They're getting the there's, of course, interpretation there. Um, but, you know, we're not here to shoot down anybody necessarily, um, but also to share the facts and share the full story. And so we rarely get complaints about that, uh, which is good. Um, so no matter what your perspective is coming here, there's something for you and there's there's a way to to learn about the war. Can you talk a little bit about the sculpture that is out front? Because I thought that was really fascinating. The two soldiers, um, and they were, you know, sharing water. Um, because again, that's that's probably a different part of the the war that people may not necessarily know about, where they were kind of the soldiers were kind of helping each other from both sides. Sure, sure, yeah, and, and like everything that nothing is black and white, right? There, there's shades everywhere, and everything we do. And the same was with the with the Civil War. And it's it, true, there were cases where it was brother against brother, you know, one family member on the north, one family member on the south. Um, but there are also cases of just um, humanity taking over. And, and the statue out front uh, shares a story of what, what happened at the Battle of Fredericksburg in uh, late 1862, a particularly terrible battle, especially for the United States, the Union troops. Um, Robert E. Lee and his, his soldiers occupied a, a hilltop called Marie's Heights in just outside the town of Fredericksburg. It was sort of this long slope going up. And the Union forces had to cross uh, a river and uh, cross through the city to eventually charge up the hill. And they did. And they were mowed down. Um, I'm sure if you're familiar with Battle of Gettysburg, you hear Pickett's Charge, just like that. They were just marching up the hillside and were mown down. And subsequent waves, five or six or seven charges happened until finally they realized they weren't going to take the hill. So this uh, this field in front of the stone wall there was covered with Union dead and dying. And so uh, uh, in the middle of the night, uh, later in the day, as the batting uh, faded off, 
a Confederate soldier jumped the, the brick wall and gave water to Union soldiers across the, the field where he could in front of him. Um, and it, our statute is called the moment of mercy. And that's kind of what it's representing. The idea that you know, even in this worst conflict, you would have a soldier or two do this. It wasn't the only case in the Civil War, but it's a, a, a familiar and famous one. And so when they built this museum, again, trying to tell that full story and having the country come back together, that's why they, they chose to have that uh, monument here. Uh, at the museum as well. Um, the original, there's one at, at Fredericksburg as well. So we've talked about uh, many of the exhibits and and the sculptures and the the dioramas. Curious as far as kind of weaving in the the staff, the employee component of delivering the content to uh, to the guests, and would love to hear as far as what your employee culture is like, and and really the the role of the staff, the human element in delivering uh, in delivering the educational content to the guests as well. Sure, sure, absolutely. Uh, staff is critical, obviously, in every place I've been. Um, and here it is, is as well. Even though it's a self-guided experience principally, so Matt, when you came, you were able to walk through the galleries on your own. Uh, what the staff will provide are public programs, some of which I've already talked about, uh, as well as uh, student programs, um, and which are finally coming back after a couple of years in COVID. Obviously, school field trips weren't the thing the last couple of years, but they are finally coming back. And so having the uh, key staff members who can provide the, this programming uh, for student groups. So we do everything from from small presentations to hands-on projects uh, for, for groups. Uh, we have pre and post visit materials that students and teachers can work with as well. Uh, and so having a person on staff that, that coordinates all that is, is critically important, as well as putting together these, these programs and events. So for me, that's the most critical component of this museum and every museum I've been at is, is having the right people in the right jobs um, that that can help to uh, to tell the full story. Our curator has been with us for over 20 years. Actually, he was here before the building was built. Um, so he is extremely familiar with the collection, uh, knows it inside and out, uh, and can really um, provide all of us on staff with the, the proper content material we need. But also, uh, if we have questions from outside the museum, we get outreach from scholars and people doing research on their family and things like that, other museums from time to time as well. And so having the right people in place to be able to do that research is critical. So, um, you know, for any, I, I got a call this morning that uh, from a former colleague asking uh, about a particular company in Connecticut uh, that at the time, the Savoir, that made buttons for uniforms. Connecticut was a big button place. They, it's, they still make them there in, in Waterbury, near where I was born. And I'm thinking, right, I'm sure we're going to find this. Um, and so I just asked him before we started. And he said, oh, yeah, we have a book on buttons. I'll look. All right. So we have a book on Civil War buttons. So he'll he'll find that and we'll be able to get back to our, our colleague who will then be able to do whatever they need to do with that. So just an example of the, of the content. Um, but, you know, that's a programmatic side. Uh, and we also have sort of the operational side. Our building is 66,000 square feet, um, so it's a fairly large museum building. And although it is city owned, we do maintain it as well as operate it for the city. So um, it's a 22 year old building. Things are beginning to get to the end of our life cycle. Um, heating and air conditioning systems, burglar alarms, fire alarms, all of that is coming through. So we have staff that can help maintain all of that. 
as well as helping us to manage it. And as a nonprofit, as I mentioned earlier, money is critical. So we have a development team uh, that goes out and helps raise money to support all of these activities, as well as anything new that we want to do. Um, I, I mentioned also earlier that uh, that last section of the gallery that talks about reunion and, and the country coming back together, we want to add a little bit more um, on, on the actual reconstruction, its successes and failures at the end of the war. Uh, where Af and particularly African Americans were granted men or were granted basic rights, including the right to vote. But slowly over time, all that was stripped away. And by the end of the 19th century, for example, there were very few black men that could vote in the South anymore, uh, all the way until the 1960s, really. So that's a, a, an important and relevant story um, and one that um, needs to be told. And so we want to do that. And so our curator and our educator will be doing a lot of research. Our development director will be out there hustling for money, and so will I. Um, so that's kind of what 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 we'll do, uh, and that's just a, kind of an example of of the roles we have here. And again, gets back to why I want to get an MBA. You know, a lot of what I do is manage budgets and numbers, and try to make projections, and try to figure out how to keep this place moving forward, uh, or any museum. So it's it's very typical stuff. So Jeff, you, you've mentioned a couple of things that you're looking forward to and, and things that you're you're planning to do. Um, how often do the exhibits or the collection get changed out or the, I mean, the story doesn't change, right? But the but I didn't know if there's things that you had that maybe you put out, um, you know, periodically or things like that. So, you know, if I were to go back, the experience, you know, would I see different artifacts or would I see different uniforms or anything like that? Um, or is that pretty much the way it's always going to be? That, that's a good question. Uh, no, you would see changes, definitely. Uh, we have two small changing exhibits we do every year, one in February and the other in June. Um, and so our, the, the exhibit coming up next will be on abolition. Uh, Pennsylvania was a very uh, significant site of the Underground Railroad and other abolitionist movements, so we'll talk about that. Uh, and then come next February, the, the, another exhibit will happen and kind of that change goes on. But because we do have, we actually have 35,000 artifacts now. I, I mentioned mm -hmm. beginning that we had 25,000 when the museum opened. That's called the City Collection, owned by the city of Harrisburg. And since we opened, we've added about 10,000 additional artifacts, including one today. Uh, with this really wonderful painting of a cavalry charge in, in the Civil War. Um, so we keep adding new artifacts, and we rotate those into the exhibits from time to time. And so that's what we'll be doing. So as you come through, Yes, the videos will be the same. The dioramas will be hard to change at the moment, um, but the artifacts, some of the interpretation does change. Um, so those are the things you'll see. We also put up uh, exhibits sometimes in our rotunda area. The, when you come into the building, there's this very large circular space. Uh, and we've done special exhibits on uh, Juneteenth, uh, which was the new federal holiday, but it was also started at the end of the Civil War uh, when uh, African-Americans in um, in Texas, Galveston, Texas, found out that they were free um, a couple of months after the end of the war. Um, so that's the beginning of that holiday. So we do things like that uh, and other projects that pop up from time to time. Um, so, but, you know, we also know, as I mentioned, that the exhibits are 21 or two years old. And so we are trying to, to uh, slowly update them. Uh, last year, we actually uh, had a major fundraising push to replace all of the uh, audio visual components in it. So behind the scenes, 
they were all 20 years old and uh, analog in many cases. So we had it all digitized and updated. My favorite story is there was a younger guy, early 20s, who was working on the project and they asked for some some of the, the files that we had from 2000, 2001. And we handed him a three and a half inch floppy disk, you know, the square ones like that. And he goes, oh, I've only seen these in books. So <laughs> we knew it was time <laughs> to, to upgrade it. So things like that are happening too. Um, but but as you said, you you go through the, the experience. There'll be a lot of rhythm to it from what you see now. But we hope with the change of artifacts and, and different items from the collection, that brings a new uh, a level to it. Yeah. Jeff, you talked a little bit about uh, connecting history to today and then doing that through driving the emotional connection. And Matt talked about his experience and and being able to kind of be emotionally compelled. And you then also talked about uh, Juneteenth and everything that happened sure. after the Civil War and sort of really connecting all these dots. And I think the, the question that comes out of this is if you can talk a little bit about why it's so important uh maybe not not only for us to learn about history american history war history through museums but also the the responsibility of history museums to be able to inspire create these emotional connections uh educate to the point where uh where it should be inspiring action so can you talk a little bit as far as uh you know what people can do once they visit the museum as far as what they're inspired, what they're called on to do, whether it's changing their way of thinking or how the history connects to today and that the museum helps to, to foster and, I don't know, continually improve society is probably the, the best yeah, way. You know, it's an excellent question. You, you hit on something that, that every museum, I think, uh, historic site and museum, and I'm sure others try to do, uh, is to broaden someone's horizons and perspective. Um, uh, to, you know, as people come in for a tour or a program, if they come in thinking one way, maybe they'll have a, a reason to think in some other direction um, or to explore areas they haven't thought of. Uh, I always tell people that after I give a program or I'm part of one, you, know, you don't have to listen to me, go get a good, a good history book, you know, and read uh, and come across with, with uh, you know, some way of advancing your, your content. And yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the the best thing about studying history uh, uh, does for a person is to provide that critical thinking skill, where you can analyze what's happening in your world today, with having something to measure it by, you know, the historic uh, stories. And, and again, it it nothing is is perfectly lined up, but the parallels are there. So if something is going on in 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 the country and you're concerned um, there's some aspect of some historical story that was probably similar to it whether it's in this country or somewhere else and so being able to study and think about that i think is the most uh, important thing we can do and it, you know it's obviously no surprise to either one of you to hear that you know our country is you know it, it's probably more divided now than it has been since that era um, and certainly finding ways to avoid an outcome like that one uh, is part of what studying going to a museum like this should be, um, that you can see the horrors of war. And uh, 700,000 people today would be 10, 12 million Americans um, today from the 1860s. And just that alone should be enough for people to say, let's, let's keep talking about things and not go that next step. Um, 
So for me, that's the critical point. And even with things, you know, when you're seeing protests like Black Lives Matter and other things, being able to have a historical perspective of what happened back in Reconstruction in particular, where African-Americans were granted a small amount of rights, um, citizenship, not to be slaves, citizenship, and then voting rights, having it all stripped away by 1890s, the Plessy versus Ferguson, one of these names you probably heard back in high school, which basically said that separate but equal was was legal. Uh, and that set up Jim Crow for the next 70 years or so. Um, so, you know, you can begin to make those parallels um, and, and try to figure things out uh, and understand. And of course, then you also get to be reintroduced to people like Abraham Lincoln by going to a museum or Ulysses Grant or some unknown soldier. And you hear those stories uh, that I, I, I always find compelling and I hope others do too. So, Really, I think, Josh, as you put it, we want people to come in and and to be thinking. And when they leave, if they go to our store and buy a book and leave with that book, that's great. And they do our best-selling items, our books. <laughs> um, so there are there are positives. And and again, um, that that's the main goal. Um, and with you know, the lack of history education in the classroom, which again has never been sort of another topic in museum studies since I can remember. Um, uh, museums are even more critical today than they've ever been. Jeff, I'm wondering if we can um, maybe switch the gear to the business side of things and talk a little bit about marketing. Um, and I'll reflect again on my experience when I was there. I think I found the museum through a Google search, like things to do in Harrisburg. Mm -hmm. um, but when I was there, what I noticed was, and Josh kind of alluded to this earlier, kind of the somber feeling or emotion and experience when you're there and it's not some place that i'm going to take selfies you know and it's not some place to, for me personally and i don't know if that's right. the same with other guests but so many places now will even they'll decorate and create spaces for people to be able to instagram what they've done and, and you're really right. counting on that kind of that user content uh content generated marketing so i'm curious you know, what sort of different approaches you might use or if that becomes, you know, something that you don't rely on as heavily because it's it's not that kind of place. Yeah, you know, that that's an interesting uh, perspective. We get a lot of people who post images on Google, on our Google sites and other things like that or share on their Facebook page or whatever it may be. But we don't have a lot of selfies, you know, and, and I think that's part of it. It is kind of not the thing. You're not going to stand in front of the slave auction and do that. Uh, I often, you know, every once in a while you hear of someone taking a selfie at Auschwitz. You know, it's not the place to do those kind of things, right? Uh, and they quite often make headlines. So when you're at a site like this, that's, that is, you know, again, talking about the death of 700,000 people, um, slavery, all these other topics. Yeah, being cautious about it is, is important. But for us, the, how you found us is one of the ways people do find us. They're passing through or they're in town. Uh, it is state capital. So people in various kinds of business will, will do that. Uh, we're also between Gettysburg and Hershey, Hershey Park in particular. So we get a lot of people that are sort of in between. And more and more as we've been doing more analysis on who, how people find us, uh, we find obviously that the online marketing is, is increasingly important. Um, most people visit our website one time. You know, they, they come to the, probably what you did find the directions and find the address and hours of operation, that type of thing. Uh, others who come back to our site are either kids doing research or, or, or historians or people looking for some of our programs and events. 
Um, but as we've done sort of a more analysis over the last couple of years, and again, I've only been here for a year and a half, we are definitely moving to a more uh, digital-based platform uh, to, to do our marketing. Google has a wonderful program called Google Grants for Nonprofits. We get up to $10,000 of free advertising per month. Um, um, no images, just lines and text, but that's okay. It's it's a very generous thing, and we're we're doing more with that. And so we we did a lot of local print ads and billboards as well. Well, for the most part, now we're going to go to a digital form. But I agree, it's not quite the place to do a, a selfie or that type of thing. So for us, we want people to share their experience, and they do that. As I mentioned on TripAdvisor, we we're about four point six or four point seven out of five stars. Um, so we're pretty highly ranked um, as, as an attraction. And so that's kind of our bread and butter uh, is that type of, of uh, marketing. Of course, our marketing budget isn't huge uh, as the rest of our budget isn't. We're operating budgets about $1.2 million for the whole organization. So, um, you know, half is staff and the rest is is everything else. So that kind of gets a sense. And boy, the electric bill has been fun over the last six months. <laughs> that's been wild. Uh, but, you know, that's how things go. Things go up and things go down. So, Jeff, we're starting to uh, wind down close to the, the end of the interview here. But curious if you have any advice or what advice you would give to aspiring museum executives. You know, this is interesting. Um, <laughs> the, the thing I would say is how I came to the realization that you're going to be dealing with numbers and fundraising and budgets, that's going to be 85% of the work, um, especially as you hit the leadership level. When you're a curator or an educator or some other aspect, then you could focus on those things. You know, the budget's sort of there and you're told what to do, what you can spend. But when you become uh, more of a senior leadership and you're responsible for uh, managing that, uh, it takes up more and more of your time. So most of my time, honestly, is spent um, managing the day-to-day -day operations, organization, budgets, that type of thing. Uh, I have uh, I work very closely with the development director on fundraising, so we do that together. Um, she takes care of a lot of a lot of the day-to-day. -day. Some of the uh, of the donors I take care of with her. Some of the more higher-end ones, so that's a common thing. Yeah. Um, also things like this, uh, where you become sort of the spokesperson for the organization, that's a big part of it. So I think um, what's interesting is a lot of people in this field, they go into it, as I mentioned at the beginning, because they don't want to go into business. They don't want to go into that part of the world. They like this stuff, you know, or they're painfully shy. <laughs> they want to go to a place where they can sort of do their gig, you know, write their papers and, and deal with their stuff. But in the end, you're like every job, the key thing to do is to, to, manage people or deal with people on a daily basis. And so for me, giving any advice that if you do want to have a, a, a leadership position, you just know that you're not going to be able to play with the with the objects and the toys in the museum a lot. <laughs> you're going to be dealing with this other stuff. Um, you're paid for it, and that's nice. Um, and there's lots of benefits because of it. Uh, someone once told me that the only thing worse than being the boss is not being the boss. So there's that aspect to it too. So uh, you definitely have to think twice before you you decide that you want to be um, a, a leader of a museum because it, it, you're not doing one thing. I worry about the electric bill and the, the boiler exploding when did this fall? Um, and as well as the interpretation, the PR, everything, you know, how to make payroll and, and six months from now, 
all of that stuff. That's why I'm going gray. Um, so it, you know, it just adds up. It's fun. It's interesting work, but it's very time consuming. And I think, you know, I, I've also run people who have come to the field after having a, a career in the for-profit world one way or another, they end up here. And I think they're surprised about how hard you have to work. I think there's also this misperception that's nonprofit. Uh, sit there. No, <laughs> no, you're constantly hustling like everybody else. And, um, but you know, you do have that message and you do have that obligation, you know, as a 501 C three, especially with a place like this, where the city owns the collection and owns the museum. It's important for us to be sure to be, uh, share a positive, um, view of the museum and the story uh, to as many people as possible so uh, i just made myself nervous so there you go uh, that's, <laughs> that's kind of what it's all about well jeff we're glad we could leave you on such a positive note and now you're nervous <laughs> about everything uh, uh, normal. i'm good <laughs> this has been a, a wonderful conversation and jeff we cannot thank you enough for your time um if people wanted to learn more about the museum or get in touch with you directly where would you send them Sure. You go to our website at nationalcivilwarmuseum.org. On there, you can find all the hours of operation, what the ticket prices are, upcoming events. My contact information is there, uh, as well as learning about other things you can do in the area. So uh, nationalcivilwarmuseum.org is the place to go. Excellent. Any uh, final thoughts, words of wisdom as we uh, wrap up here? <laughs> Words of wisdom, study history. Um, it, it absolutely is, is critical. If you hated it in high school, which a lot of people do, um, you know, pick up a good, yes, there you go. Yeah. But look where you went and you had a great experience, right? Yeah. Uh, yes. Go to museums, uh, read good history books, read good books, uh, even watch good documentaries and get a sense of history. It gives you a perspective on life. It makes you uh, uh, not take everybody at their word. <laughs> it, it allows you to analyze. I think for me, that's the most important thing a museum can do is to get people thinking uh, and to uh, make sound decisions. Excellent. Well, thank you so much again for your time, Jeff, today. It was really, really fascinating. Uh, and for everybody out there who's watching and listening, just remember, we are all Attraction Pros. Thanks for listening to the Attraction Pros podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release. And even better, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information, visit attractionpros.com.